Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about space-time terrors, awful apparitions, and creepy kids. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of J.M. Simnamo, Kyle Harrison, and Max Voynich to life are Luis Bermudez, Jordan Lester, and Vanessa Bonilla. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our Theater of the Minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Thank you. 
Our first tale tonight was written by J.M. Sinamo and is voiced by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's 2019 Evil Idol champion, Luis Bermudez. Without further ado, I present to you The Infinite. Nestled just off the Appalachian Trail near the border of Virginia and West Virginia, where forests grew thick and pressed in on all sides, sat a small region known as Dry Branch. Barely more than a collection of campgrounds, Dry Branch rarely received visitors, save for those taking a short break while hiking the neighboring mountain ranges. Even the locals and nearby towns would say it was pleasant, yet unremarkable. However, thanks to years of careful research, Dr. Charles Sutterfield knew better. Though he was much younger than most of his colleagues, Charles had excelled in his field of study at an early age. By the time he was 28, he was already the youngest professor of archaeology the University of William and Mary had ever employed. His students were fond of his lectures and stories from his time spent out in the field on digs and excavations. Some would go as far as to say that he was just a hat and a whip shy of being an action hero. Of course, none of this concerned him in the slightest. So long as his students listened, took their notes, and passed his test, he couldn't care less what they thought about him. He had too much on his mind to let popularity contests distract him from his work. The spring semester had come to an end, and he had only one thing on his mind. Dry Branch. One early June morning, before the sun had crested over the horizon, Charles packed his truck with tools, food, camping gear, hiking equipment, and books, and set out on the five-hour drive to the campsite he planned to call home for the next two weeks or so. The campground was nearly vacant as he pulled his truck up to site number F5. Save for a solitary red tent a few plots down, he was virtually alone. He smiled as he stepped out of his pickup and into the clearing. The tall pines, poplars, and hickories loomed overhead like ancient skyscrapers. Birds, squirrels, and a plethora of other forest creatures chittered away, adding a serene chorus to the picturesque mountain view. If he could, he'd stay here forever. As he finished hammering the last of his tent stakes into the ground, his peaceful solitude was interrupted by an excited voice in the distance. Hey, neighbor! The voice boomed from the nearby trail, cutting off the ensemble of wildlife that had greeted him on his arrival. Need a hand? Charles turned to see a young, bearded man walking toward his campsite. He was dressed as one would expect a hiker to be this time of year. Khaki shorts, hiking boots with long socks, a short-sleeve flannel button-up. The works. Charles waved hello, but shook his head. The young man approached him and extended his hand. How's it going? I'm Robbie. I'm at the side over there. Robbie pointed to the tent Charles had seen when he first arrived. Not wanting to seem rude, he stood up, took Robbie's hand, and introduced himself. The two men made friendly conversation as Charles finished unpacking his belongings. They talked about the weather being ideal for camping, 
how the relative solitude was a welcome reprieve from their day-to-day lives and their plans for the next few days. I see you brought a lot of books and papers with you. Uh, Does this trip have to do with your paleontology work? Robbie asked. Archaeology, Charles corrected. And no, I enjoy reading in my spare time and it's never a bad idea to brush up on the basics. With that lie, he bid Robbie farewell and turned his attention to an ancient leather-bound book he had brought from his collection. In its pages, it described an antediluvian ritual that would bestow its caster with eternal life, and if his research was correct, that same ritual's last known owner reportedly lived in a cottage not far from Dry Branch. Charles waited until Robbie had gone for a hike before he set off on his mission. He had stayed up late the night before, studying old maps, legends, and research notes that would lead him to the spell. Once he was sure his camp neighbor had gone, he packed what tools and papers he would need and began the arduous trek off of the well-worn path and into the neighboring woods. The surrounding forest seemed eldritch when compared to the trees at the campground. Thick trunks, gnarled branches, and moss-covered stumps of all varieties pressed in on all sides, forming a thick, wooden maze. As he pushed his way through the woods, the bird songs lessened and the shadows grew darker. Fallen trees and jagged mountain rocks formed barriers and obstacles impeding his journey. After hiking for several hours, Charles stopped to have a bite to eat and check over his notes. According to his calculations, he should have reached the cottage by now, but no such structures were in sight. He checked the time on his phone. The clock showed it was only 2pm, but the sky had grown dark and it looked closer to dusk than mid-afternoon. He returned to his notes. Immortality spells, or spells involving time manipulation, can alter more than just the caster. The more powerful the incantation, the more potent the effect. When regarding Ein Sof, be wary of your surroundings. Charles read these words and laughed. He dismissed the darkened sky as a trick of the light from the looming trees and clouds. This spell had interested him since he began his archaeological research, but he never truly believed it was true. His studies and readings of occult practices had piqued his interest from an early age, but he had never found proof of their powers in all of his years of research. This investigation would, hopefully, answer his questions. He returned the papers to his backpack and continued on his journey. The sky grew darker as he continued his walk, casting the entire forest in an alien bluish-gray hue. He stumbled over twisted roots and overgrown brambles until he reached a break in the tree line and found himself on a narrow, well-worn path. The dirt trail cut through the trees, bending and twisting with an unsavory, serpent-like pattern. The sun had all but set, and twilight was closing in on his mission. He retrieved his flashlight from his pack and cast its beam down the trail. Charles smiled and cupped a hand over his mouth to prevent disturbing the silence with a burst of triumphant laughter. There, in the narrow beam of light, sat his destination. 
an old cottage rumored to be the last known location of the ritual known as Ein Sof the Infinite. Charles carefully approached the dwelling and took note of the bizarre scenery caught in the glow of his flashlight. The cottage was beyond decrepit. The moldering ruins of what was once a woodland house leaned at absurd angles. The windows were smashed out, the roof caved in from years of neglect and debris, and the stones were moss-grown and chipping. However, what made the small clearing truly bizarre was the flora. Trees of all ages grew near the cabin. Some looked older than time itself, while others were barely saplings. Stumps of petrified wood stood like stone remnants of a forest long forgotten, yet in their midst were trees still blossoming and bearing fruit. Much as he tried, Charles could not explain these phenomena and made a quick note of it in his journal. The door to the cottage gave no impediment and practically fell off its rusted hinges as he made his way inside. The floorboards were littered with leaves, dirt, and a thick dust that blanketed the entire room. Torn papers and molding tomes were stacked high on every flat surface and shelf. While these manuscripts did interest him, Charles only had one book on his mind, In Libro de Vacui, The Book of the Void. In its pages was the storied incantation that would bestow its invoker life everlasting. Hours passed with no sign of the fabled text, yet the time on his phone only read 5.45 p.m. Charles searched every pile, every shelf, every mess of strewn papers, but to no avail. He lifted his flashlight, hoping to find some place in this disintegrating house that might contain the volume he had traveled so far to obtain. As the light tracked across the room, he noticed something that had eluded him while he searched through the piles of books and papers, a small hatch in the floor of the cottage with a round metal ring for a handle. He approached the small door and carefully lifted it open. Excitement filled him, forcing a short gasp from his mouth. Carved on the underside of the door were the words, Ein Sof. The cellar proved to be in worse array than the rest of the building. Broken wooden furniture, torn papers, shattered glass, and the carcasses of dead rats adorned the room in a hideous display. The odor of this basement exuded was equally foul. A mixture of long-dead animals coupled with the stench of damp leaves and papers. However, one item sat pristine amongst the decay and destruction a book in the very center of the room. Charles quickly descended the ladder and rushed over to the book. In Libro de Vacui, he had found it. Without wasting another moment, he opened the book and vigorously turned through the pages until he discovered the Ein Sof incantation and ritual. His legs grew weak, his hands trembled, sweat seeped out of every pore. He knew he had to see if it worked. The discovery of the spell was monumental in its own right, but he had to know. Charles marveled at the aged, scrawled words before him and ghastly etchings of unearthly beings, dismembered corpses, and pelagic monstrosities that bordered the pages containing 
the ritual. In the center of the page was a drawing of some formless entity, riddled with eyes, tendrils, teeth, and suckers. He quickly referred back to his notes. The Zohar believed Ein Sof to mean the nameless being. Numerous scholars consider this a reference to the Hebrew god before the creation story in Genesis. However, some maintained the nameless being was a deity older than any known Judeo-Christian god that abandoned its own plane of existence to rest in the void that preceded our universe. He placed the open book on the floor in front of him and prepared to perform the ritual. With the symbols drawn in a circle on the floor around him and the candles lit, Charles was ready to begin. He produced a sharp hunting knife from his pocket and sliced a long cut into his left palm, letting the blood trickle down his forearm for a moment. He held his bleeding hand over the center candle and let the blood drip onto the flame causing it to flicker, but not extinguish. I divorce this blood so its flow may no longer sustain me. He then lifted his blood-soaked hand to his mouth and forced his index finger down his throat until he retched and vomited the remnants of his lunch into the center of the circle. Heaving and gasping, he uttered the next line of the incantation. I divorce this food so its bounty may no longer sustain me. The surrounding candle flames flickered and swayed as if blown by an unfelt wind. He held his wounded hand over the center flame, letting the fire lick the wound until his hand burnt and the bleeding stopped. Tears flowed from his eyes as he choked out the next verse. I divorce this flesh so it may never wrinkle with time. At this utterance, all of the candle flames died, casting the dank cellar into complete darkness. The shadows swirled and danced before him. The decaying smell of the cottage was washed away by the sickening combination of candle smoke, vomit, and burnt flesh. He felt weak and faint, but knew he had to see it through to the end. Hesitating no longer, he reached into his backpack and retrieved a pair of pliers. With one quick motion, he placed the tool in his mouth and jerked one of his bottom teeth out, root and all. Blood and saliva filled his mouth as his trembling hand placed the tooth at the base of the candle. I divorce this bone so its structure may no longer be my support. Charles's words trailed off. The room felt like it was spinning. He tried to maintain his composure, but as he attempted to stand, his knees gave way. His eyes rolled back in his head, and he fell unconscious into the middle of the circle. In his comatose state, Charles dreamt of the horrors portrayed on the pages of the ritual he had performed. Terrible unearthly vistas and galleries adorned with pagan statues, human flesh, ancient tombs, and etchings of the dreadful being he now believed to be Ein Sof. Try as he might, he could not wake himself from the nightmares that now surrounded him. 
The damnable beings crept closer to his paralyzed form, and he feared that this dream would be his mortal end. As the grotesque limbs and gnashing teeth fell upon him, he was jolted awake by a very real noise in the cellar. The sound that had rescued him from his nightmare and plunged him into a waking terror was laughter. Not a hearty, jubilant laughter like those of his colleagues and students, no. This was a shallow, hoarse chuckle that made a sound akin to gravel crunching under trees. Charles quickly backed away from the source of the noise, pressing himself in the far corner of the cellar. Who is it? Who's there? Charles begged, praying there would be no response. His questions were met with the sound of weak shuffling and labored breathing. After a moment, the laugh's owner replied. The book, the stranger said in a scratchy whisper. You found my book. It was mine years ago. You read it, didn't you? But I am too late. You have to give it to me. We have to destroy it. Charles mustered the courage to retrieve his flashlight from the floor. He quickly turned it on and aimed the light at the stranger. The horror that sat crouched across from him shook him to his very core, causing his flashlight to fall from his hand and break on the hard stone floor. In the brief moments before his light had died, Charles saw a man or what was once a man. A nearly skeletal being now shared this cramped, subterranean room, eyes sunken in with an unearthly glow, skin stretched tight over an aged frame, hair long and stringy with the appearance of spider silk. This thing looked to be hundreds of years old. In his panic, Charles swallowed hard and attempted to converse with this living corpse. You... you performed the ritual too. And I undid it, the creature growled. All of my years and sin returned to me in a wave of decrepitness. I do not know how much longer I have until this form fails me, but the book must be destroyed. Charles could hear the creaking and snapping of the man's bones as he shuffled toward him in the dark. In a panic, he grabbed his book of matches and struck them, casting the cellar in an orange, hellish glow. I won't let you destroy it, Charles cried out. It is too valuable to my work. His protest had fallen on deaf ears, for the cadaverous man was already upon him. Jerking and wrenching at his hand, the creature wrestled the lit book of matches from him and cast them onto the dry, brittle pages of In Libro de Vacui. Before he could even attempt to extinguish the flames, Charles watched in terror as the man lifted the book into his arms, cackling as the flames ignited his tattered clothes and leathery skin as quickly as they had the book. The pillar of laughing fire stood bright in the center of the cellar, until it choked out its last breath and fell into a smoldering heap in the center of the ritual circle. Charles fell to his knees in a mixture of shock and despair. 
all of his work, all of his research that had led him to this tome, now gone forever. For decades, Charles searched for another copy of In Libro de Vacui. The spell had indeed worked, but presented new problems to his life. He had to eat, or at least pretend to, so as not to draw suspicion when in polite company. He had to dye his hair, beard, and eyebrows gray to give the appearance of aging. Most troublesome were the time lapses that followed him. Clocks visibly stopped in his presence. Time jumped ahead like a needle skipping on a record, and random rifts in space-time only he could see tore into his waking reality. These tears in the fabric of reality showed him past events and murky visions of things that he had never witnessed. Immortality spells, or spells involving time manipulation, can alter more than just the caster. The more powerful the incantation, the more potent the effect. When regarding Ein Sof, be wary of your surroundings. These words proved as true as the ritual's potency. After a while, he quit his job at the university so no one would catch on to what he really was. Immortal, retired, friendless, he left America and continued his search around the globe, hoping to find a copy of the book that had both extended and ruined his life. Nearly 200 years after he escaped the cellar near Dry Branch while conversing with a shopkeeper in Tel Aviv, Charles heard rumor of a fabled spell that was said to grant its reader immortality located in an unmarked tomb just south of Jerusalem near Ein Bokek. This had to be it. Charles paid the shopkeeper for some supplies he would need and asked for his services as a guide into this unknown resting place. The man gave him the supplies but refused to accompany him. He claimed the place was cursed by the unholy text that resided somewhere deep within. As Charles made his way to the exit, he was approached by a young shop clerk that had listened to his conversation while stocking shelves. Excuse me, sir. If you are willing to pay me the same, I would be more than happy to assist you. Charles gave the young man a quizzical look. You aren't afraid of the curse your boss had mentioned? No, sir, the clerk began. I am afraid of not being able to provide for my family. I may not know much, but I'm strong and good at following instructions. Charles patted him on the shoulder. What's your name, kid? He asked. Haran. My name is Haran. With their brief introduction finished, Charles told him where he was staying and instructed him to be there at the crack of dawn. The next morning... The two men arrived at a crumbling cemetery just outside of Ein Bokek. Haran had proved invaluable to Charles's mission. He was a great travel companion, spoke the local dialect, hauled his fair share of equipment, and made Charles's presence in the area seem less suspicious. After following the shopkeeper's description and instructions, they found themselves standing before an enormous ancient crypt. Its stone doors stood sentinel-like against the stone-hued edifice. Charles pressed his hand against the door and suddenly fell to his knees. A time rift had taken over his vision. 
In place of the graveyard, he saw the cottage cellar from centuries past and the cadaverous being that had destroyed his work. Haran rushed to his side. Dr. Charles, are you okay? This question snapped him back to the present. I'm fine, Haran, he replied, regaining his composure. This is it. It's close. With his companion's help, the two men pried the massive door open. A foul air wafted from the entryway. Before them sat a stone-carved stairway that plunged downward, flanked by alcoves filled with urns and skeletal remains. Flashlights readied, they proceeded down the narrow stairs into the abyss. The innards of the tomb were vast, a labyrinth of corridors, rooms, and passageways spread under the ancient cemetery like a necropolis. Haran was visibly frightened and feared they would become lost in this maze of decay. Charles, however, seemed sure he was going in the right direction. Some preternatural sense was guiding him along through twists and turns until, finally, he stopped. There, in a bone-strewn antechamber was an archway leading into a circular room. He recognized the archway almost instantly, for its carvings were the same as the etchings that bordered the pages of the Einsoff ritual. Charles raced into the room, Horan trailing behind, not wanting to be left alone in this horrific place. In the center of the room sat a flat stone altar with a pedestal behind it. There on the pedestal sat a second copy of In Libro de Vacui. Excitement and joy filled him as he rushed over to confirm his find. Without thinking, Charles lifted the prized tome off of its perch. Before he could relish in his long-awaited find, the tomb quaked and trembled, sending stone debris down around them. A trap had been set in place to ensure the book was never disturbed. The two men watched in horror as their only means of escape was sealed shut by a large stone slab. Try as they might, the stone would not budge and they lacked the proper equipment to destroy it. Tears filled Haran's eyes as he slumped down onto the altar. Defeat and hopelessness engulfed him as he thought of never seeing his wife and child again. Charles began to flip through the book that he had searched for so long. He once again found the ritual of immortality, the spell that had brought him more trouble and grief than living a mortal life ever could. As he turned through the pages, he discovered something he had hoped would exist. De Reditu Exponentia. The Spell of Return. He carefully read the ritual and was relieved. Ein Sof could be undone and the spell would make him mortal again. He could be free of this curse, instead of being doomed to spend eternity imprisoned in this place. I am so sorry, my friend, he said in a calm, determined voice. But you're as good as dead anyway, and the spell demands a sacrifice. Before Haran could even make sense of these words, Charles plunged a knife deep into the side of his neck and gently lowered him onto the altar to begin the ritual. I expel this life so that mortality may find me, for I have lived many lives. I give one more so that I may return, return to how things were. May his fragility come to me. May I return to once I was. 
As the last breaths of life escaped Haran's lips, a rift opened in the sealed room and pulled Charles into a starlit void. He watched in astonishment as time and space wrapped and bent around him with scenes of his life's journey. The vistas of the past hurtled him backward as his body aged in contrast. Time and decay had found him. His skin wrinkled and grew thin. His hair grew long and stringy and fell out in clumps. His teeth rotted and fell loose from his laughing maw. His voice cracked and broke, becoming nothing more than a hoarse cacophony. The rift closed, time halted, and the spell ended. Old and brittle, he prayed death would find him immediately, but something was wrong. The spell of return had worked. It had restored his mortality, but it had also delivered him to the time and place the curse had first taken hold, the cellar in Dry Branch. Decaying and emaciated, he surveyed his surroundings. There, on the floor, across from him, lied the unconscious form of his younger self, the remnants of the Einsoff ritual surrounding him. At this sight, his sanity splintered, and he began to laugh in his dry, gravelly voice. Who is it? His younger self screamed. Who's there? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Infinite, as written by J.M. Sinamo and voiced by Luis Bermudez, the winner of our 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoyed Luis's performance here tonight, check out his other entries from the 2019 competition, available now on our YouTube channel via the Evil Idol 2019 playlist or in the six-story championship celebration video we put together there. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Kyle Harrison and performed by Miss Jordan Lester, about harrowing hauntings and dark discoveries. Without further ado, I present to you The Boy at the Top of the Stairs. It was only a faint giggle at first. It started last March, a week after we moved into our new place. 
We came to Camden to start over. My husband Ted had just lost his job near Little Rock, so going back to where we both grew up made the most sense, especially since the housing market is fairly reasonable here. The tough part was already done before we got there. I had scoured Zillow, Realtor.com, Trulia, you name it. We had about seven different options, but the one near the old water tower felt special to me. When I looked at the old brick and the cobblestone pathway, I had a connection to them. The virtual tour showed me an open den connecting to the kitchen, a spacious basement, and even extra rooms on the second floor. Maybe we could turn one of those into a nursery soon, Ted teased as I showed him. We've been thinking about having a family for quite some time, and the more I looked at the prospective house, the more I was sure this was the place for us. I felt at home there, even though I had never stepped foot into it. Like it was a part of me. Ted's brother Austin came to help us move everything into the two-story cottage, and I agreed to cook us all pizza and celebrate. We needed something to feel good about after all the bad luck we'd been having lately. Ted, have you seen the pots and pans? I asked as they moved the couch into the den. Um, I think I put them upstairs in the room I'm going to turn into my office, he responded, grunting as they struggled to turn the corner. Please be careful and don't scuff up the paint, I told them both as I squeezed by them and went to find the box. Thankfully, I had made sure to mark all of our boxes so they would be easily identifiable, something my mom taught me, so grabbing it hadn't taken much effort at all. It was when I was stepping out into the hallway and moving toward the stairs that I heard it. It was soft at first, almost like the house was settling, but definitely noticeable. This gentle, playful whistle was followed by a laugh, like that from a toddler. It actually made me stop and glance around the long corridor, thinking I was hearing things. Then I heard it again, and I looked straight ahead towards the end of the hall, where a long wall mirror was hanging, and I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye. I shrugged it off and went back to the kitchen to get started. A few minutes later, though, when Ted and Austin came in with the flat screen, I paused to grab a glass of water and muttered, Honey, did you leave the back door open when you came by yesterday? They carefully set the Samsung 46-inch down. Ted wiped his brow before answering, What? No, what are you talking about? It's nothing, I said dismissively as I heard the oven go off. You boys sit down and take a break. Pizza will be ready in about three to five minutes. No objections here, Austin said. I'm going to go wash up, Ted added as I set the table. I almost forgot about the strange laughter upstairs. Almost. It took them about four more hours to get everything inside. I helped with the lighter stuff and started taking everything else out of the boxes, putting it in the proper place. I avoided going back upstairs, though. Not alone, anyway. I know it's silly, but something made the hair on my arms stand up whenever I got anywhere close to those stairs. Thankfully, Ted and his brother were busy on the second floor putting together our king-size bed, so it wasn't an issue. Besides, I figured the bad feeling I had would eventually pass. I think that's everything, Austin said as he brought in the last few boxes. Ted was in the garage hooking up the washer and dryer, so he asked me if I could take them up to the bedroom. I'm bushed, he explained. I couldn't think of an excuse to avoid the stairs, so I went ahead and grabbed the boxes, slowly climbing the steps again. I was tense. I don't know why. I've never believed in anything like ghosts. I've heard people talk about that kind of stuff before, but I figured it was always because of wanting attention. It's not like anything was out of place when the realtor showed us the place. That's why, when I put the box down in the master bedroom... I knew I must be letting my nerves get to me. 
This will pass once I get used to the house, I told myself. But when I went back out into the hall, I heard the same laughter again, and it made a chill run up and down my spine. Ted? Is that you? I called out, hoping that my husband was simply playing a prank on me. He knew that I scared easily. When there was no response, I tried his brother, but again, silence answered me back. Then a few seconds later, as I got to the first step going down, I heard that laughter again. It was so faint, as if it was all inside my head. But it bothered me more than ever before. Did you get lost? Austin teased as I came back to the den. Sorry, I was putting a few things away, I told him. When are you going to get Cable hooked up? I wanted to watch the basketball game, Austin said as he sprawled on the couch. Ted came in from the garage looking exhausted and remarked, Right now, all I want to do is get some sleep. He stood there looking at his brother, hoping that Austin would take the hint and go ahead and leave. After a few moments of awkward silence, his brother yawned and said, Sure. Anyway, I guess I'll see you next week. Sounds good, Ted answered, giving his brother a pat on the back as Austin left. We stood on the front porch and waved as he was about to get into his jeep at the front of the driveway. What about the moving truck? I asked, staring over at the U-Haul. Ted sighed in frustration. I forgot all about that. I guess we better return it tonight or they'll charge us for another whole day. I tensed up, immediately regretting making the suggestion in the first place. Ted waved his brother down to stop him as he backed out and the two talked near our mailbox. I couldn't hear the conversation, but I secretly hoped that Austin would say no. I didn't want to be alone in the house, even if it was for a short period of time. Ted walked back up to me and sighed. Austin's going to follow me over there. If we leave now, we can get to the store before they close. I frowned, and he kissed me, and I mumbled, Do you really have to? Is it really that much? He didn't know the reason for my complaint, and I doubted he would even take it under consideration if I told him. Instead, he climbed into the driver's seat of the moving truck and rolled down the window to talk to me as he started the engine. You gonna stay up for me? He asked. I smiled and said yeah, and I wrapped my arms around my body uncomfortably. Hurry back, I added. He winked and rolled up the window, turning his attention to the road as he too backed out. I watched until they both disappeared into the gloom, heading toward town. Then I stood on the porch for another few moments, trying to convince myself it was safe to go inside. The house felt empty when I closed the door, despite all the stuff we just filled it with. I sat down on the couch and tried to distract myself with Facebook and Instagram. For the first ten minutes, nothing happened, and I relaxed, telling myself that I had simply been imagining things earlier. That feeling of security didn't last long, though. Hello? My body went stiff. I sat up and looked around, trying to stay calm. Do I respond? Should I ignore it? I chose the latter and kept looking at my phone. There was no one there, I told myself. Then I heard the sound of a ball bouncing, like someone was dribbling down the hall. I tried to call Ted, but it went straight to voicemail. Then the voice returned, this time not so faint. Hello? I started trying to call my parents, just to talk to someone and distract myself, but no one was responding to my texts or calls. I can't tell you how alone I felt. My hands were shaking. I felt like I needed to vomit, but then I felt stupid. Nothing was going to happen. I convinced myself to stand up and move towards the steps. I had to confront this irrational fear, and then it would go away. Or so I thought. I stood there, feeling like a complete fool. 
Then I made a challenging taunt. I'm not scared of you, I shouted to the emptiness. Nothing. Just like I expected. I turned to sit back down and then heard the giggle again, followed by the sound of the ball. I didn't look, but a moment later, a small, bouncy yellow ball rolled past my feet. I nearly screamed. Then Ted walked through the door. Hey, are you okay? It looks like you've seen a ghost, he joked. I ran to him and did my best not to collapse in tears. Whoa, are you alright? He asked as he held me. There's someone in the house, I told him. He stiffened up and looked toward the stairs. I nodded silently. He grabbed his keys, gripping them in between his fingers, and he went to check the rooms. I stood there at the bottom of the steps, waiting to see what happened. He returned a moment later and called me up. There's nobody here. What's gotten into you? He asked, rubbing my shoulders. I'm sorry. I'm just tired, I said, staring down at the bouncy ball. It's just this somehow got downstairs. He looked at it and picked it up, smiling before providing a rational explanation. Oh, I'm sure I probably stacked some of the boxes wrong and one fell over, making the ball tumble down, he said. I nodded and followed him to the master bedroom, hoping that I didn't hear any more strange childish laughter tonight. It's going to be fine. I'll protect you, he whispered as we snuggled close. It was hard to fall asleep that first night. I kept waiting for another taunt from the house, but nothing happened. And for some reason, the quiet stillness bothered me more. We settled in, and Ted finally started a new job at the hospital. He drove to the interview on a Saturday afternoon, leaving me alone in the house for the first time in weeks. The supervisor needs me to work a couple of graveyard shifts, just until they hire a few more people, he told me on the phone. I had insisted that he call as soon as he was out of the interview. Strange as it sounds, I thought the ghost had stopped bothering me because Ted was nearby. It's only going to be for a little while, babe, he repeated. The news made me feel uneasy. Even though I had not heard the laughter again since that first night, I didn't want Ted to start working. Especially not at night. Isn't there someone else who can take those hours? I asked as I slowly finished some chores. I tried to keep myself busy with anything while he was gone. Babe, we need the money. Those few odd jobs and shit I sold on eBay isn't going to cut it, he told me. He was right, of course. I didn't need to keep living in fear. But the second I got off the phone with him, the laughter returned. The nightmare had started all over again. I know what you're doing, and it's not going to work, I told the ghost. I'm not scared of you, and I'm not going to talk to you again, I said, letting my voice echo up to the living room. So you can just leave. The spirit made no reply. But I would get an answer soon enough. Ted went to work that next Tuesday, leaving the house around 7.19. I insisted he stay on the phone with me until he got there. My excuse was that it was storming and I wanted to be sure that he was okay. Scared to be in the house alone? He teased, picking up on my unease. I had finally talked the night before about the ghost and he had taken me seriously then. Spirits linger in houses for a variety of reasons. My mom said she saw one a lot when she was a little girl. Has the ghost tried to hurt you? He asked as we cuddled together. I just don't know what it wants or why this house picked me, I admitted. Sometimes they can offer important messages. Warnings from the past, even visions of the future. Maybe you should confront the spirit next time it happens. Get a feel of it, you know? It might be trying to tell you something, he suggested. That memory lingered as he prepared to step out the door, asking me if I was going to be alright alone. I'll be fine, I said. 
I don't know if I was telling him or trying to give myself a pep talk. I figured I would draw myself a bath, watch a little Netflix, and then go to bed until he got home. Although I had promised Ted I would take his advice, another strategy had developed in my head. As long as I don't acknowledge it, it will just go away, I thought as I started the hot water. It can be so hard to feel like a prisoner in your own home. But I was determined to win this fight. Once finished, I grabbed a night robe and settled into the tub, letting the soap and soothing warm water relax me. I closed my eyes and put Rihanna on Pandora to keep me distracted. The music lifted my mood and I gently cried, praying that tonight I wouldn't have a visit. I think someone was listening to that prayer, but it certainly wasn't God. As the first song ended, the strange, peculiar tune played instead. It sounded like a distorted version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Why won't you play with me? My eyes bulged open and I stared towards the open door. There, in the hallway, I saw the silhouette of a small boy, probably no older than three or four. I don't know how long we gazed at each other. It could have been hours. I didn't know what to do. And then the boy repeated his question and pushed the door open. What do you want from me? I asked anxiously as he walked into the bathroom. He was wearing overalls and a Paw Patrol shirt, his blonde hair and soft green eyes reminding me a little of my father. Play with me, he insisted, and then ran into the hallway. I waited a moment, closing my eyes and trying to push the apparition away. Even the music changed back to normal. Finally, silence fell over the house. Was he gone? I climbed out of the bath slowly and got dressed, carefully checking the hall to be sure that I was alone. I crept toward the master bedroom, hoping my demand for the spirit to leave had worked. Instead, as I reached the end of the hall, I saw the boy again in the mirror, this time standing near Ted's office, the corner room. Who are you? The boy asked as he got closer. His little feet made a strange noise as he approached me. He was so close to me. Please, please just leave me alone, I told the ghost. Why? The boy asked, touching my hand. I felt it. It made me jolt and step backwards, but instead of hitting solid ground, my foot tumbled backward and I lost my balance. I was at the top of the stairs. Before I knew what was happening, I fell, head over heels, my body banging and crumpling as I tumbled down the stairs. My head slammed against the floor and I lay still, pain coursing through me as the room spun. I could still just barely see the boy standing at the top of the stairs. He was looking at me curiously and I screamed, Please, please just go away! I shouted at the top of my lungs as I tried to move. I couldn't. I had broken something. Any move I made only caused more pain to shoot through my body. I closed my eyes and kept sobbing. The next thing I remember is when Ted was over me, calling paramedics. I think it took four of them to carefully get me on a stretcher and take me to the ER. As I kept fading in and out of consciousness, all I heard was that boy's playful voice. Come out and play, he taunted me. I kept asking it to stop. Then everything went black. The sound of a heart monitor brought me back. It was well into the night, but I could see that the emergency team had done its best to patch me up. I had bandages and bruises all over my body. Then I saw Ted was asleep in the chair beside me, and I nudged him awake. Thank God, he said as he squeezed my hand and wiped away the tears from his eyes. I was so worried. Oh God, I'm so glad you're okay, he said. How bad is it? I asked. The doctor came into our room tomorrow. Everything looks fine. Aside from the initial loss, I think you're going to only have minimal bruising, he said. Loss? 
What do you mean? I asked. Ted squeezed my hand, his eyes searching for the right words to say. Babe, you were pregnant. Almost four weeks. I felt my heart drop. Suddenly everything the doctor and him were saying became muffled like I was drowning. I let go of his hand and felt numb inside, realizing exactly why the ghost had been coming to me so regularly. Ted's speculation had been right. It wasn't a spirit from the past at all. It was a portent from the future. The next day we came home and Ted said he would take off work to make sure I was all right. For the first time since we moved, I insisted I wanted to be alone. I'll just rest until you get back, I told him. He seemed hesitant to give in to me, but finally agreed and went to work the next day. As soon as he left and I heard his car drive away, I sat up in the bed and decided to try the unthinkable. Hello? I called out. But no response came. Gingerly, I crept out of the bed and moved to the hallway, my hand cradling the scars on my body where they had rushed to save me. Please. Please come back. I whispered into the quiet corridor. But no laughter ever came. I hope you enjoyed The Boy at the Top of the Stairs, as written by Kyle Harrison and performed by Jordan Lester. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you, in the form of a tale from author Max Voynich, and it's brought to life by actress Vanessa Bonilla. In it, a little girl whose father has warned her she's far too young to be communicating via the internet, defies him and does it anyway, because as you'll soon see, she's got one hell of a story to tell. Without further ado, I present to you, Johnny, such a good boy, Johnny. My dad taught me how to use the internet because sometimes he said he felt too lazy to scroll and he just wanted to sit and smoke cigarettes and drink beer and I would read out the answers in the threads he liked the sound of. If I stumbled on a word, he'd box my ear real hard and it would get all swollen and red and I'd have to keep reading even though my vision would swim like the road does on a hot day. Sometimes, when he would leave the room to go and do a piss, I would drink a gulp or two of beer from his can and it would taste warm and horrid like sawdust. But I would do it anyway because it would make me feel older and then I would spend the rest of the day acting like a grown-up. I would say things like, Have you done your taxes yet? No, neither have I. Or ask people where they have parallel parked and then say things like, Fuck you. Get out my house. My son's asleep. Have you people no dignity? I tried a cigarette once, but I only breathed in once, and my dad came in and caught me, and he said, What the hell do you think you're doing, Johnny? Don't you know those things can kill you? And then he made me sleep on the floor for a few days until he forgot why I was sleeping on the floor in the first place. But this is all besides the point. I am here because I need help with something. My dad is not scared off very much. In fact, I think he is the bravest man I have ever seen. 
or at least he is probably the strongest. But sometimes when he talks about my uncle, and he always calls him my uncle, even though I know that he is also his brother, sometimes when he talks about my uncle, he, he goes all pale and his eyes go wide, and he shakes like I do if I'm really tired or, or if I'm carrying something that is too heavy for me. And recently, maybe a week ago, maybe more, I, I don't know, I'm not very good with calendars. He said, your uncle's coming over. And then he got really panicky like a trapped rat, and he said he had no choice. And then he said he was sorry, and sorry is not a word I have heard him say very much. And then he started drinking more, and not just beer. But, but vodka too, and, and whiskey, and he would drink until he was sick like I was when he kicked me, and then he would fall asleep, but not, not completely asleep, but half asleep, and he would say things in a funny voice. Things like, please don't, don't do that, and go away, and sometimes he would grab me by the arm so hard that it hurt, and he says things like, if he comes, you must not let him in. Do you understand me? You must not let him in. And so I didn't. But I did not know when he would come or or what he would look like. And my dad was always passed out on the sofa, and he stank of sweat and vodka, and so I would leave him because he does not like to be woken up. Sometimes I, th I would think I could hear something outside the house. Something like someone running their hands along the walls and tapping the tips of their fingers against the windows. And it would scare me so much that I could not sleep. And the gravel on one side of the house would crunch like it does when someone's walking on it. The few days went by like this, and I mainly slept in the day in the corner of the room my dad was in, even though I knew that was probably a bad idea. And then... I got too scared of even going upstairs, because the house is old, and makes these strange sounds at night which my dad says are just pipes. Shut up! Just pipes. But I think sometimes that there are maybe invisible people walking up the halls, because I can hear their footsteps. Doors open and close to rooms I am not meant to go into. They smell like herbs and incense, and they're lit by candles, like when the power goes out. And it was like that in the corner of the room with my dad. And I saw it for the first time. Saw him for the very first time. There, somewhere in the garden, between the branches, was a man who stood with his hands behind his back, and he had a big yellow smile like he had eaten a whole can of yellow paint. His skin all gray and wet, like he had been in the shower for too long. And he just stood like that, and watched me, and I watched him. And my dad snored like a car engine. And this yellow smile ran his tongue over his teeth. And then he was gone. And there was a knocking at the door. A knock, knock, knock. A very impatient knock, like they were desperate to get in, like they were in a real rush or something. 
And then I noticed that my dad was not asleep, but awake, and his eyes were wide open, and his blue shirt was stained at the pits and on the belly, dark with sweat, and his face looked half like he was crying, half like he wanted to scream. And he was shaking, and his mouth kept opening and closing like a fish. Open, close, open, close. But no noise was coming out, like a fish makes no noise when it is on the pier. It just flops and can't breathe. And then there was a voice from the door, and it said, You owe me this, George. You owe me this. Just this, little one. George is the name of my dad, in case you are confused. And it was a scratchy voice. Like it wasn't used very often, and I thought maybe their throat was like dry hay. And the knocking got faster, and my dad is saying, No, do not go to that door. Please just stay here. Stay with me. And the voice is saying, George, you remember, don't you? You have to remember, George. I want what I am owed. And then there is silence. And then, I can see it. A face pressed against the window looking in, looking straight at me like it appeared out of nowhere. Its teeth are the color of earwax or melted butter. And I jump out of my skin, and I'm not embarrassed, but I think I peed a little bit when I saw it. And it goes, and we sit in silence. And my dad drinks a whole bottle of vodka, and cries, and says he is sorry. In the morning, a nice lady comes over who brings us food sometimes, and we hide all the bottles and cans, because something should just stay private, son. You will learn that when you are older. And I try and tell her about uncle, but my dad grabs me and says, Johnny has been having nightmares, which I most certainly have not, because I haven't actually been sleeping very much. And she looks at me, all sad, like you would look at a hurt pet, and she says, He doesn't know. And I say, I don't know what. And she says, The crash, George. The crash. He is probably old enough to know. He should know. And my dad says, Julie, you need to shut the hell up. And she does. And that is the end of that. And then she goes and we are alone again. And my dad keeps talking to himself and says things like, I knew this would happen. I knew it. I knew it. And he smokes lots of cigarettes and puts them out on the walls, which leaves lots of little black marks like ladybug spots. And sometimes he says things to me like, you know, sometimes I hated you for it. I hated you for being the one or things like, I had no choice, it had to be you. He was not a good man. He was never a good man. Before I know it, night has come again, and he is there at the window. Uncle. But this time, he is crying big sobs like he has stubbed his toe, and his eyes are purple and bloodshot. He is weeping and somehow still smiling that big yellow smile, and he is saying, Johnny, 
You must let me in. Your father is very sick. He is very sick indeed. He needs help. And my dad is doing that fish thing with his mouth. Open. Close. Open. Close. And I am so scared. My knees are knocking together. And uncle is pressing his face against the window now. And opening his mouth. And his tongue is the same color as the bags under his eyes. And he is saying, Let me in. Let me in, you little fucking brat. Let me in or I'll slit you like a pig all up in your chest and stomach. And then there's that knocking at the door again. Knock, knock, knock. Desperate and urgent like someone is dying to get in. And uncle's voice is all small and girly now. And he is saying, Please, oh please, Johnny, you must let me in. Your father is so sick, and I have medicine. All high-pitched and squeaky. Johnny, such a brave boy, Johnny. Let me in now, or there will be hell to pay. Let me in, you fucking cretin, or I will rip you open like your skin is wet tissue paper. And I don't move. Just hold my knees and bite my lip and hope to God that he goes away. And he does. But he says he will be back tomorrow, and he will take what he owed. Mark his words. And so that, dear friends, is why I am writing to you. Because I have nowhere else to turn, and my dad is passed out and too drunk to stand, let alone to help. And I do not know if I can manage another night of this. I am so scared, I feel like my heart will burst. Splat. I do not know what deal was made, but I am going to try and find out. I have got a pan and a knife from a kitchen, like a sword and a shield in case worse comes to worst. But I am so scared, really. I know boys are not meant to say things like that, but I am, and I do not know what to do. Because he will come back. He will come back, I know he will. And this is an old house. And there are gaps and cracks everywhere. And it is only so long before he finds a way to get in. And then I, I do not know what will happen. I do not know at all. All I know is that it is so bad that when I asked my dad what he meant, he, he cried and held my head. And I had not seen him cry that hard since Mum died. I... I do not know where else to turn. And last night, before Uncle left, when he peered in through the window and looked straight in my eyes, he winked. He winked like he knew something. I didn't. I hope you enjoyed Johnny, such a good boy, Johnny, as written by Max Voynich and voiced by Vanessa Bonilla. Thank you again for joining us for tonight's program. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. 
I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs>